Welcome to episode 13 of Bookmarked. In today's episode, we're going to explore the book Shoe Dog, a memoir by the creator of Nike by Phil Knight. This memoir chronicles the history of Nike from its founding as Blue Ribbon Sports and its early challenges to its evolution as one of the world's most recognized and profitable companies. It also highlights certain parts of Phil Knight's life. As I go through chapters, you know, two to three at a time, or sometimes more, I'll summarize the key points or what you should focus on as the listener to make sure you understand what's going on during the time. And with that, let's get started. Prologue. Dawn. Phil woke up to the gentle rays of the morning sun peeking through his window. Stretching his limbs and yawning, he knew it was time to start the day. He padded down the stairs, his bare feet barely making a sound on the hardwood floor. Phil prepared a light breakfast, savoring each bite as he contemplated his roots in Oregon. Being from Oregon had always held a special place in his heart. The rugged landscapes, the welcoming communities, and the spirit of adventure that seemed to permeate through the air. It all contributed to his deep sense of pride. However, he couldn't shake the nagging feeling that most people underestimated the significance of his home state. In the eyes of the world, it was often overlooked, as if a little importance ever happened there. Lost in thought, Phil realized that he had returned to his childhood home and was living with his parents again after seven years away. Despite the accomplishments he had achieved during his time, including earning a master's degree in business from Stanford after attending the University of Oregon, he couldn't help but feel like a kid. The weight of responsibility hadn't fully settled on his shoulders, and he yearned for something more. As he finished his breakfast, he resolved that he wanted his life to be filled with joy and a sense of playfulness. The thought that sparked his imagination and his mind began to wander to this crazy idea. The concept had been brewing in his thoughts for a while, but today, it was especially alive. With each stride, as Phil embarked on his morning run, he picked up the pace, fueled by exhilaration of envisioning his crazy idea becoming a reality. His heart raced not just from the exertion of the run, but also from the excitement bubbling within him. He could almost taste the success and the satisfaction of pursuing his dreams. The wind flew his hair, as if nature itself was egging him on. He sprinted faster, his breath coming in quick bursts, and the world around him blurring at his mind focused solely on his vision. In that moment, a surge of determination coursed through his veins. He had a new profound conviction, a mantra that reverberated through his mind. Never stop, just keep going. It echoed within him, pushing him to push himself. He knew that no matter what challenges lay ahead, he had to persevere. Fifty years later, as he reflected on the wisdom of his youthful self, he realized that his advice had been the most important he had ever received. It had guided him through countless obstacles, propelled him to success, and allowed him to embrace the true essence of living. That simple mantra, never stop, just keep going. This has become a cornerstone of his journey and the legacy he would leave behind. Phil smiled grateful for the young man who had dared to dream and acted upon his aspirations. And as the sun set on his rich and fulfilling life, he couldn't help but be thankful for the power of that crazy idea that ignited a lifetime of purpose, fun, and fulfillment. Chapter 1, 1962 Phil found his father lounging in his favorite armchair, engrossed in a television program. The flickering light reflected in his eyes, momentarily distracting him from the screen. Phil took a deep breath, mustering the courage to approach his father with his crazy idea, the one that had been simmering in his mind ever since his days at Stanford Business School. Father, he said tentatively, I have something I'd like to discuss with you. His father shifted his gaze away from the television, offering his son a curious, attentive look. What is it, Buck? Buck was a nickname given to Phil by those closest to him. With a, a mix of excitement and kind of trepidation, Phil recounted the paper he had written during his time at Stanford, an exploration of the potential impact of Japanese running shoes in the American market. The more he pondered the idea, the more he became convinced of its immense potential. He envisioned himself flying to Japan, seeking out a company to partner with, and introducing their shoe to the American market. 
But to embark on this journey, he needed his father's financial support. To his relief, his father listened closely, considering the proposal very carefully. And after a moment of contemplation, he nodded approvingly. Buck, I believe in your dreams. If this is what you truly want, I'm willing to support you. And with a surge of gratitude and determination, Phil spent weeks meticulously preparing for his upcoming adventure. He turned to his friend and former Stanford classmate Carter, seeking a companion for his journey. Fortunately, Carter shared Phil's sense of adventure and immediately agreed to join him. On the fateful day of September 7th, 1962, Phil and Carter bid farewell to their homes in Oregon and embarked on a road trip to San Francisco. From there, they boarded a plane destined for Honolulu, Hawaii. The allure of the island's tropical paradise captivated them, and they decided to extend their stay indefinitely. They found jobs selling encyclopedias door-to-door, with Phil initially struggling to make sales. Eventually, he switched to becoming a security salesman, finding more success and swiftly earning enough commission to cover six months of rent. Surrounded by Hawaii's waves and the vibrant atmosphere of local dive bars, Phil enjoyed the relatively carefree period. But as the days passed, a restlessness grew within him, urging him to continue his travels. Carter, however, decided to remain behind in the Hawaiian paradise. On Thanksgiving Day, 1962, Phil boarded a plane for Tokyo, Japan, embarking on the next chapter of his journey. The city's bustling streets bore the scars of World War II, remnants of a conflicted past that left profound impact on Phil's impressionable mind. He immersed himself in the rich culture, visiting both commercial and religious sites, eager to absorb every experience there. Fate led Phil to meeting two ex-GIs who had launched a magazine centered all around importing Japanese products. Their invaluable advice on conducting business in Japan urged him to approach negotiations with humility and avoid excessive aggression. This ended up being proving instrumental to his dealings with the Japanese later in his life. Filled with anticipation, Phil boarded a plane to Kobe, Japan, where he was then greeted by Onitsuka, a renowned shoe company. The factory tour left him in awe, and he was led to a conference room where Mr. Miyazaki, a prominent figure, awaited him. When he was asked about the company he represented, Phil drew inspiration from the blue ribbons in his walls of his childhood bedroom in Oregon, and confidently said, I am here on behalf of the company Blue Ribbon. Phil presented his vision for the American shoe market, outlining the lucrative opportunity that lay before them. Impressed, Onitsuka offered Phil the opportunity to represent their tiger shoes in the United States. An agreement was reached, and Phil eagerly requested a shipment of samples to his U.S. address. The shipment cost $50, and Phil mailed to his father very urgently to send him $50 or send Onitsuka $50 for the shipment. During this transformative trip to Japan, Phil became more enamored with the idea of Zen philosophy, particularly its application to business and sports. The notion that success could be attained by transcending self and opponent resonated deeply within him, shaping his future business strategy. He continued his travels to Hong Kong, the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, and India, with each destination leaving a mark on his soul. His voyage carried him further to Kenya, the pyramids of Egypt, Jerusalem, Istanbul, Rome, Florence, Milan, Venice, Paris, Berlin, Vienna, and finally London. Amidst this whirlwind of exploration, it was Greece that claimed a special place in his heart. As he stood before the Acropolis, overlooking its timeless majesty, a profound sense of familiarity washed over him. The Temple of Athena, Nike, renowned for its connection to victory, invoked a deep resonance within him. On February 24th, 1963, on Phil's 25th birthday, he returned home. The world had become his classroom, his password an invaluable source of wisdom and inspiration. And as he stepped foot on familiar soil, he knew that the journey was only the beginning, a journey that would forever shape the landscape of sports and the business industries, guided by principles of Zen, perseverance, and an unwavering belief in his crazy idea. Chapter 2, 1963 After returning home from his trip around the world, Phil looked for work. Phil visits Don Frisbee, a local CEO whom his father is friends with, and Frisbee advises him to get his CPA. 
So then Phil goes and enrolls in accounting classes. So again, remember he has an undergraduate from the University of Oregon and he has an MBA from Stanford, but now he's going back to get a CPA. So he goes there and gets a job at an accounting firm where he works about 12 hours a day and he's paid well, but he misses the adventure from the previous year when he traveled the world and was more adventurous. He also wonders as if his shoes are ever going to arrive or if he just lost $50 of his dad's money to Onitsuka. In summary, Phil writes, this is how I spent 1963. Quizzing pigeons, polishing my valiant, and writing letters. Chapter 3, 1964. In the first week of 1964, Phil made his way down to the warehouse located on the bustling waterfront. There, he eagerly received a large box adorned with Japanese writing. Returning home, carefully opened the box and revealed 12 pairs of exquisite white shoes with a strike of blue stripes. Phil couldn't help but be captivated by their beauty, realizing the immense potential they had. With gratitude and respect, Phil decided to send two pairs of these remarkable shoes to his old track coach at the University of Oregon, Bob Bowerman. Memories of Bowerman, both intimidating and revered, flooded Phil's mind. He remembered the influential presence and legendary coaching skills of the man who had shaped the athletic journey of his. Bowerman responded to Phil's gesture, suggesting that they meet for lunch in the following week. On January 25th, 1964, the two men convened at the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Portland, Oregon. Bowerman, impressed by the Japanese shoes, expressed interest in joining Phil's venture in Onitsuka. Together, they forged a business partnership, agreeing to a 50-50 share of the company. A few days later, Phil and Bowerman met with Bowerman's lawyer, Jacquois, to formalize the agreement. Jacquois, understanding Bowerman's preference not to be in charge, proposed a 51-49 split, granting Phil majority control. With the shared vision and mutual trust, they signed the necessary paperwork for the business. Filled with renewed determination, Phil wasted no time and promptly wrote to Onitsuka, requesting to become the exclusive distributor of Tiger Shoes in the Western United States. Placing an order for 300 pairs of these remarkable shoes, Phil borrowed $1,000 from his supportive father to ensure the purchase. In April of 1964, the long-awaited shipment of shoes arrived, accompanied by a letter from Mr. Mizaki affirming Phil's role as the distributor for Onitsuka in the Western United States. Filled with anticipation and a sense of purpose, Phil made the bold decision to leave his job at the accounting firm and fully devote himself to selling Onitsuka shoes out of the trunk of his car. Phil's success soon became evident as he traversed the Pacific Northwest, attending track meets and passionately promoting the merits of the Tiger shoes to coaches, athletes, and enthusiastic fans. Word spread fast, and Phil found himself with several requests for shoes through mail orders. To his surprise and delight, his mail order business naturally blossomed, becoming a testament to the appeal and quality of the shoes he presented. Runners seeking the perfect fit would occasionally visit Phil's parents' home, where he would warmly welcome them in and assist them with measuring their feet. The moment of triumph arrived on July 4th of 1964, as Phil sold out his initial shipment of Tiger shoes. Encouraged by the demand, Phil wasted no time in writing Onitsuka, requesting 900 more pairs, with an estimated cost of around $3,000. To cover this expense, Phil secured a loan from First National Bank of Oregon, determined to fuel the growing success of his venture. With the business flourishing, Phil recognized the need for expansion. He decided to hire a salesman in California, hoping to tap into new markets. It was during a track meet at a college near Los Angeles where fate intervened. Phil was warmly greeted by Jeff Johnson, a former track competitor who happened to sell shoes for Adidas on the weekends. Phil was eager to enlist Johnson as a seller for Tiger Shoes and extended an offer only to be declined. Meanwhile, a troubling letter arrived from the East Coast man, whom Phil playfully dubbed the Marlboro Man. Claiming exclusive distribution rights for Onitsuka in the United States, the man demanded that Phil cease selling Tiger Shoes. Feeling the weight of the situation, Phil sought guidance from his cousin, Doug Hauser, a lawyer. After careful consideration, Phil resolved to confront Onitsuka in person and booked a flight to Japan. Arriving in Kobe, Phil wasted no time in making contact with Onitsuka. A meeting was arranged at the hotel restaurant where he was introduced to Mr. Morimoto, Mr. Miyazaki's successor. Phil passionately presented his case, advocating for his continued role as distributor for Onitsuka in the United States. Following day, 
Bill received an unexpected call. Mr. Onitsuka himself wanted to meet him. Bill eagerly headed to Onitsuka's headquarters, where executives and Mr. Onitsuka himself welcomed him into the conference room. After a thoughtful discussion, a decision was reached. Bill would continue to sell tiger shoes in the western states, while the Marlboro Man would be confined to the eastern states. This agreement would be reassessed after one year. Having successfully resolved the distribution issue, Bill felt a surge of triumph and relief. Eager to celebrate and savor the beauty of life, he decided to embark on the climb up the legendary Mount Fuji. As dust settled at the foot of the mountain, Bill found himself resting at a station where he crossed paths with a fellow American, a man and a woman. As they climbed together, Bill engaged in deep conversation with a woman named Sarah, forging a connection amidst the beauty of nature. Returning to the base of the mountain, Bill and Sarah spent two enchanting days together before parting ways. In an impulsive gesture, Bill left a note at the American Express office inviting Sarah to visit him in Portland. To his surprise and delight, Sarah arrived unannounced at his parents' home, where her charm captivated even the sternest of hearts. Their bond deepened as they spent two magical weekends together, and the following Christmas, Sarah visited once again. However, with time, Bill noticed subtle coolings in Sarah's letters in which they wrote, which led to a candid conversation where she admitted feeling that he lacked sophistication and questioned their compatibility. Ultimately, they decided to part ways. With the evolution of his business and the increasing demands it brought, Bill recognized the need for assistance. Turning to family, he enlisted the help of his sister Jean, who became the first ever employee of Blue Ribbon, providing invaluable support and secretarial tasks and ensuring smooth operations for the growing enterprise. Chapter 4, 1965 At the beginning of the year, Bill extends an enticing offer to Jeff Johnson, inviting him to join Blue Ribbon as a commissioned salesman. Johnson enthusiastically accepts the proposition, eager to contribute his skills to the growing company. However, as time goes on, Johnson's exuberance manifests in a barrage of emails to Phil, filled with detailed reports of his sales, plans, suggestions, and thoughts. The sheer volume of correspondence leaves Phil feeling concerned and questioning whether Johnson may be somewhat unhinged. In April of 1965, Johnson surprises Phil with the news that he had resigned from his position as a social worker in Los Angeles. Despite Phil's reservations about the potential instability of the work at Blue Ribbon, he ultimately yields to Johnson's persistence and offers him a position of the company's first full-time employee. However, as Blue Ribbon continues to experience rapid growth, Phil encounters challenges with his banker, who expresses concerns that the company is expanding beyond its equity. The banker warns of the dangers associated with growing off the balance sheet, emphasizing caution. Undeterred, Phil firmly believes that growth is imperative for the survival of his company. He boldly places orders with Onitsuka, twice the size of his previous ones, and successfully persuades the bank to approve the necessary loan to fuel its expansion. Amidst the uncertainty surrounding Blue Ribbon's future, Phil contemplates the need to seek a real job. He secures a position at an accountant at the Price Waterhouse, where he crosses paths with a charismatic individual named Delbert Hayes. Hayes, a man of large stature and even larger appetite, possesses a unique blend of flamboyance and exceptional accounting talent. Phil accompanies Hayes to local dive bars in Portland after work and joins him on road trips to visit clients, experiencing the vibrant energy that Hayes exudes. Meanwhile, during his visit to Japan for the 1964 Olympics, Bowerman establishes a strong connection with Mr. Onitsuka during his visit to the Onitsuka headquarters. Upon returning to Oregon, Bowerman maintains correspondence with Mr. Onitsuka, sharing innovative shoe ideas that he believes could benefit both parties. Inspired by Bowerman's vision, Onitsuka develops prototypes according to his notes and sends them to Oregon. Bowerman eagerly distributes the prototypes to his runners, who showcases the shoe's exceptional performance by achieving remarkable victories in their races. Chapter 5, 1966 Johnson's relentless stream of emails from California continue, and for Phil, for his part, continues to refrain from responding. With the freedom to operate as he pleases, Johnson throws himself obsessively into his work for Blue Ribbon. He establishes a comprehensive customer service database and diligently maintains regular communication with each customer. As Phil's journey progresses, he decides to leave his parents' house behind and rents an apartment in downtown Portland, embracing the new profound independence. During this period, Johnson informs Phil about a car incident that he had been involved in. 
Despite his critical injuries, Johnson manages to fulfill his obligations to Blue Ribbon. Inspired by Johnson's dedication and resilience, Phil presents a proposition. Should Johnson sell 3,250 pairs of shoes by June 1966, he would be granted the opportunity to open a retail store. Johnson rises to the challenge, exceeding the goal, and in the fall of that year, Blue Ribbon opens its first retail space in Santa Monica. Meanwhile, Phil receives disconcerting news that the Marlboro Man has resumed selling Onitsuka shoes on the East Coast. Faced with this challenge, Phil embarks on yet another trip to Japan, driven by the hope of securing exclusive rights to sell Onitsuka shoes in the United States. As he arrives to the Onitsuka headquarters, he finds himself seated in the conference room with Hame, a new export manager who replaced Morimoto. With conviction and determination, Phil makes a persuasive case to Kitame and the other executives, emphasizing that Blue Ribbon should be granted exclusive distribution rights in the United States. Initially met with resistance, Phil resorts to a bluff, claiming that Blue Ribbon does indeed have offices on the West Coast. Surprisingly, the statement resonates with Kitame, leading to a change of heart. And the following morning, Blue Ribbon is awarded a coveted three-year contract, becoming Onitsuka's exclusive distributor in the United States. Chapter 6, 1967 Phil hires John Borg, a local track coach, to oversee Johnson's retail store in Santa Monica. Determined to expand Blue Ribbon's reach, Phil flies to Los Angeles to meet Johnson and propose a bold plan to relocate to the East Coast and promptly establish a factory there. Initially hesitant, Johnson eventually agrees to Phil's proposition. However, in a surprising turn of events, Johnson threatens to quit working for Blue Ribbon unless he's made a partner and given a raise. Concerned about losing a valuable team member, Phil travels to Palo Alto, where Johnson is staying with his parents. In a meeting that includes Johnson's father, discussions ensue regarding Johnson's demands. While Johnson's father argues for his son's partnership, Phil extends a compromise offering a modest $50 raise. Johnson accepts the offer and remains an integral part of the Blue Ribbon team. Seeking to bolster Blue Ribbon's workforce, Phil hires two former University of Oregon track runners. Seeking to bolster Blue Ribbon's workforce, Phil hires two former University of Oregon track runners, Jeff Hollister and Bob Waddell. Waddell, who had tragically become wheelchair-bound due to a past accident, finds a new purpose as Phil presents him with the opportunity to open Blue Ribbon's second retail store in Eugene, Oregon. With enthusiasm, Waddell accepts the offer, embracing the chance to contribute to the company's growth. Meanwhile, Onitsuka responds to Bowerman's suggestion by creating a shoe prototype, which they aptly named the Cortez, in preparation for the upcoming 1968 Mexico City Olympics. The introduction for the Cortez proved successful for Blue Ribbon, enabling them to meet their sales expectations of $84,000 by the end of that year. Outgrowing his apartment, Phil rents a simple and affordable office space next door to a local tavern known as the Pink Bucket, marking the expansion of Blue Ribbon's physical presence. On the East Coast, Johnson establishes an office in Wellesley, just outside of Boston. Leveraging his exclusive file system of customers, Johnson sets out to create a new base of clients, expanding Blue Ribbon's reach even further. So here are the lessons learned and key moments to kind of keep in mind for chapters one through three. First, living a life of play. Phil Knight desires to live a life that feels like play, shaping his decisions in the company culture at Nike, or at Blue Ribbon at this time. This mindset influences the kind of people he hires and the atmosphere they hope to create together. Two, the mantra, just don't stop, is something that he adopts as a guiding principle throughout his life and the events depicted in Shoe Dog. This mantra underscores his determination and perseverance in the face of challenges. 3. Phil develops a deep connection with philosophy of Zen, particularly as it relates to business and athletic competition. The concept of forgetting the self becomes significant, dissolving barriers and fostering a unified approach to victory. Fourth, Japan's post-World War II context. The war's presence and absence creates a complex subtext that adds challenges to his negotiations and interactions with the executives at Onitsuka. Fifth, family dynamics and support. Knight's family, or 
specifically his father, initially disapproves of his kind of ambition to start a shoe company, creating this psychological barrier. However, his mother offers support from the beginning by purchasing shoes from his first shipment. The most crucial support comes from Bill Bowerman, his former track coach, whose co-ownership of Blue Ribbon proves instrumental in establishing the company's legitimacy and reputation. Uh, I believe six, hands-off management style. Bill's management style has been typically influenced by his early experiences with Jeff Johnson and his first employees. He gives Johnson the freedom to follow his passion and make his own decisions, resulting in significant growth for Blue Ribbon. And Knight and or Phil extends this kind of hands-off approach to later employees, fostering a positive and empowered work environment. And the last key takeaway from the collection of these chapters is breaking the rules. Phil embraces the philosophy of breaking the rules to achieve success. He often repeats the quote, you are remembered for the rules you break. Chapter 7, 1967. Phil, determined to dedicate more time to his shoe company, makes a career switch to become an accounting professor at Portland State University. On the first day of class, his attention is captured by a young woman sitting in the front row. With her stylish attire and captivating blue eyes, her name is Penelope Parks. Despite her quiet nature, Miss Parks proves to be a talented student in class. Impressed by her capabilities, Phil takes a bold step and offers her a job at the shoe company, which she gladly accepts. Ms. Parks quickly becomes an essential part of the small office, showcasing her skills and efficiency. Her presence also brings joy to Waddell and another team member, and Phil's admiration for Park grows and grows. And one evening after work, he musters the courage to ask her out for dinner. To his delight, she agrees. For their date, Phil takes her to the Oregon Zoo, creating a memorable experience for them both. Although Ms. Park mentions that she has seen someone, she realizes Phil possesses a level of maturity and worldly knowledge that sets him apart. They continue dating, spending most of their time together, and both at Blue Ribbon and at Phil's apartment. They then introduce each other to their prospective parents, deepening their connection. During a business trip to Japan, Phil meets with Katame, who expresses approval of his sales performance. As a gesture of kindness, Katame invites Phil to a company picnic on a small island. During the picnic, Phil encounters Fujimoto, a man who shares the devastation caused by a typhoon, including the loss of his bicycle. Touched by the story, Phil decides to make a difference. Upon returning to the United States, he sends Fujimoto $50, providing him the means to purchase a new bicycle. This act of kindness leads to a life-altering partnership between the two of them. Finally, on a beautiful day in September of 1968, Phil and Penny for Penelope, exchange vows and celebrate their marriage in Portland. Chapter 8, 1968 Phil expands his team by hiring more sales representatives as Blue Ribbon continues to thrive. With sales reaching 150,000 in 1968, Phil sets his sights on doubling that figure the following year. Confident in the company's growth, he decides to quit his teaching job at Portland State University and begins paying himself a salary. As he wraps up his last week of teaching, Phil encounters a young woman named Carolyn Davidson, who impresses him with her talent as a painter. Intrigued, he takes her contact information and considering her as a potential artist for future advertisements. Eager to gather information about their competitor, Onitsuka, Phil makes a bold move. He sends a memo to his company, announcing the presence of a spy within Onitsuka. Although he doesn't mention Fujimoto by name, Phil alludes to him being an insider at the company. In the spring, Penny shares the joyous news of her pregnancy. Phil and Penny decide to move to a new home in Beaverton, using Phil's savings for the dorm payment and pledging a house as collateral. With the approval of his banker, Harry White, Phil also embarks on a search for a larger office space for Blue Ribbon. During this time, Phil and Waddell, his trusted companion, drive around Portland further strengthening their bond while seeking a perfect location. They eventually find an office in a small town south of Portland. Impressed by Waddell's dedication and abilities, Phil promotes him to operations manager. In September of 1969, Penny gives birth to a baby boy named Matthew, bringing immense joy to their lives. However, a challenge arises when Phil receives a letter from John Bork, 
who demands a raise. Phil responds with the letter and sends Waddell to Los Angeles to smooth things over. Despite the initial tension, Wart chooses to stay with Blue Ribbon. Phil, realizing the importance of having operations closer to home, decides to relocate warehouse operations to Oregon. Chapter 9, 1970 Phil embarks on another trip to Japan with a crucial mission in mind, to sign a new deal with Onitsuka. As he enters the conference room to meet Mr. Onitsuka and Kitame, the negotiations unfold. Although Phil had hoped for a five-year deal renewal, they agreed to only a three-year renewal. Despite his slight disappointment, Phil accepts the terms, recognizing the importance of securing the partnership. However, a financial hurdle arises when Onitsuka requests $20,000 to cover a large spring shipment. Phil finds himself lacking the funds and requests a few days' time. Determined to fulfill the obligation, he gathers the necessary funds from receivables, but the experiences prompts him to seek more sustainable long-term situations. Phil turns to friends and family reaching out for loans. Waddell's family generously loans him $5,000 providing some relief, and it should be noted this was his family's life savings. In June of 1970, Phil's attention is caught by Sports Illustrated cover featuring Steve Prefontaine, an exceptional runner for the University of Oregon. Described as perhaps the greatest of all time, Prefontaine's achievements shine bright. Phil consults with Bill Bowerman, who holds high praise for Pre, determining him the fastest mid-distance runner alive and the best runner he has ever coached. Inspired by an article in Japanese trading companies, Phil visits the Bank of Tokyo in Portland, seeking a connection to a Japanese trading company. The encounter leads him to meet an executive from Niso Awai, a prominent trading company whose office is conveniently located right above the bank. The executive presents Phil with a promising deal on the spot. However, Phil must first receive clearance from Onitsuka. Eager to move forward, he sends a wire to Onitsuka, awaiting the response with anticipation. Amidst these developments, a call from someone on the East Coast sends shockwaves through Phil's world. The caller claims that Onitsuka is considering approaching them to become their main distributor in the United States, potentially ending their partnership with Blue Ribbon. Concerned by this news, Phil reaches out to Fujimoto, his trusted insider at Onitsuka, seeking for confirmation and insight on this. As the story unfolds, Phil faces the critical decisions that could significantly impact the future of Blue Ribbon. So here are the key notes or lessons right now from chapters 7 through 9. So first, Phil finally has the conviction by, to quit his kind of secure job to pursue his crazy idea with Blue Ribbon full-time. And despite skepticism from authority figures like his former boss or his father, he chooses to never stop pursuing that dream, even in the face of doubt. Second, the most important partnership in his life and career is formed when he meets and marries Penny, again, a former student in his accounting class. And this uh, alliance and relationship proves to be a unique, unprecedented, and life-altering event for him. Third, the early years of Blue Ribbon are really marked by financial challenges, particularly the cash flow problems. Phil faces difficulties in securing loans from his bankers and is always forced to find alternative solutions. He attempts to make a small public offering that fails and eventually has to rely on loans from family and friends. The lesson here is the importance of finding creative solutions for persevering in the face of financial obstacles. The fourth takeaway from this is that his father undergoes kind of a transformation of approval as he becomes more interested in the problems that Phil and the company face on the day-to-day. -day. They have frequent conversations to discuss the latest challenges and developments with Blue Ribbon, highlighting their kind of ever-evolving dynamic within the relationship. And lastly, the mantra, keep going, don't stop, serves as kind of the guiding principle for Knight during these challenging moments. He reminds himself to persist and overcome obstacles, even when faced with setbacks and the need to accept help from others. Chapter 10, 1971. Phil welcomes Kitame and his assistant Wano at the airport, ready to show them the time of their lives during their visit to Oregon. Together with Penny, they embark on a weekend of adventure, taking Kitame to explore the picturesque Oregon coast, visit Phil's bank in Oregon, and tour Blue Ribbon's offices in Portland. During a meeting, Kitame expresses his frustration with the slow sales, which pushes Phil to take matters into his own hands. Seizing an opportunity while Kitame is in the restroom, Phil discreetly takes some documents from Kitame's briefcase. Later, Phil and Waddell examine the contents of the folder, 
discovering a list of 18 potential new distributors across the United States. As Kitame's visit nears an end, a grand dinner is hosted at Bowerman's home in Eugene. While Kitame travels across the United States, Bill meets with Hayes, his eccentric former colleague at Price Waterhouse, who now works at Blue Ribbon. Together, they decide it's best to maintain their relationship with Onitsuka for as long as possible. When Kitame returns to Oregon before his departure to Japan, he attempts to convince Phil to sell Blue Ribbon to Onitsuka, but Phil delays this decision, promising to discuss it with Bowerman. Phil receives kind of troublesome news from White, his banker at First National, which severs ties with Blue Ribbon. With this happening, Phil secures a new line of credit with Bank of California, and during a meeting with Niso, Phil discovers that they are willing to take a secondary position on their loans, providing a glimmer of hope for Blue Ribbon's financial stability. Next, Phil travels to a factory in central Mexico. Impressed by its cleanliness and efficiency, he places an order for 3,000 pairs of leather soccer shoes. Back in Oregon, Phil contacts Carolyn Davis, the talented young artist he encountered at Portland State University, and entrusts her with creating a new logo. The result of this is a dynamic design resembling a whoosh of the air. Phil sends the logo to the factory in Mexico and now faces the challenge of naming the shoes. Woodell recalls a name that Johnson dreamt of, Nike. Inspired by the suggestion, Phil chooses Nike as the brand's name. And again, all of this is happening, Phil meeting with a new manufacturer in Mexico, setting up a new brand, all because they're trying to separate themselves from Onitsuka and not rely on them anymore, since Onitsuka is clearly trying to replace Phil and his team. In June of 1971, Blue Ribbon commences offering 200,000 shares of debentures at $1 per share. However, problems arise when the shoes produced at the Mexican factory prove to be of poor quality, easily falling apart. Phil's ally, Sol, hired by Niso as a consultant, vows to assist him in overcoming these challenges and defeating Kitame. Phil seeks new manufacturing options, and Sol claims to know several factories in Japan that could be more suitable. With this, Phil embarks on another trip to Japan, accompanied by Sol's son as his guide. In Kurume, they find a factory capable of producing samples at an astonishing speed. Phil requests a series of samples to be sent to him in Tokyo. Although they have minor imperfections, they are deemed very good overall. Inspired by his time in Japan, Phil names the individual shoe models, such as Wimbledon, the Blazer, the Bruin, and the Marathon. During his visit to Onitsuka, Phil is warmly welcomed and later enjoys a dinner with Kitame and Fujimoto, fostering both business and personal connections. Phil recounts that this dinner with them is quite awkward and very tense, as since Kitame is wanting to buy Blue Ribbon and put them out of business, and even look to replace them with other distributors, and he doesn't know that Phil knows this at this point. So it, it's kind of a, a very interesting dynamic between uh, these two individuals, with Fujimoto being right at the middle as well, being kind of the middleman. Meanwhile, Bowerman tirelessly experiments with shoe designs featuring in a waffle iron sole, and he eventually develops a design that gains approval from his runners. Phil sends a sample of these kind of innovative waffle shoe uh, sole designs to the factory, the new factory in Japan, marking another huge step forward in Blue Ribbon's journey, becoming hopefully independent from Onitsuka. Chapter 11, 1972. Phil and his team set up a captivating booth in the National Sporting Goods Association show in Chicago, and despite receiving lower quality shoes from the factory than expected, nevertheless, their Nike shoes became the talk of the show receiving overwhelming praise and acclaim. Unexpectedly, Kitame appears in Phil's office. His anger is very palpable and unannounced. He demands answers about Nike, suspecting it's more than just a sideline project in which Phil originally, originally told him. Phil calmly explains that it's a backup plan in case Onitsuka pulls the rug under them. Determined to uncover the truth, Kitame travels to California and visits Blue Ribbon store in Los Angeles where he stumbles upon a storeroom filled with hundreds of boxes of Nike. Shortly after, Bork wants a blue ribbon, switches sides, and starts working with Kitame. A crucial meeting takes place, gathering Phil, Bowerman, Jekwa, again this is Bowerman's lawyer, Kitame, and Iwano. Kitame presents a document claiming that Blue Ribbon's contract with Onitsuka is now null and void. In response to this setback, 
Phil gathers his employees and addresses the company at a pivotal crossroad. He emphasizes that the loss of Onitsuka's supply represents an opportunity and a moment they've been waiting for. Phil's enthusiasm kind of relieves his employees and instills them with this new sense of renewed sense of determination. Nike begins to make its mark in the sporting world as few athletes start to compete in Nike shoes at the 1972 Olympic trials held in Eugene, Oregon. The standout moment comes during a race between the legendary runner Pre and George Young. In a super exciting final lap, Pre surges ahead of Young, igniting thunderous applause from the crowd. Phil is deeply moved by this moment and reminds himself not to forget the significance of this milestone. Later in the year, Phil secures a sponsorship with a very talented Romanian tennis player, and in the same year, the University of Oregon's football team proudly dons Nike shoes during their triumph win over Oregon State, solidifying Nike's presence in the world of athletics. In this way, Phil's perseverance and ability to turn these different challenges into opportunities propels Nike forward, leading to groundbreaking sponsorships and notable achievements that marks the brand's ascent in the sporting world. Chapter 12 1973. After a disappointing fourth place finish at the Olympics, Pre resumes training and racing, setting an impressive American record in the 5,000 meter distance while wearing Nikes. Recognizing his immense talent and appeal, Blue Ribbon hires Pre as a celebrity endorser. Phil appoints Hollister as a dedicated employee as Pre's companion on a nationwide tour to meet and inspire runners, coaches, and fans. In a strategic move, Phil decides to have Johnson and Waddell swap locations and job roles. Johnson returns to the West Coast to contribute with his design expertise in Oregon, while Waddell takes charge of the administration tasks on the East Coast. Facing a legal challenge that's ongoing, Onitsuka files a lawsuit against Blue Ribbon in Japan. In response, Phil takes action by filing a countersuit against Onitsuka in the United States, accusing them of breach of contract and trademark infringement. Phil's cousin, Hauser, informs him of hiring a new lawyer named Rob Strasser. From their first meeting, Phil is immediately drawn to Strasser's towering height and impressive beard. They quickly establish connection, sharing personal ties, and both being natives of Oregon. In the fall of 1973, Phil introduces a program called Futures to Retailers, persuading them to place large and non-refundable orders six months in advance. In exchange, retailers receive a substantial discount. This arrangement provides Phil with increased security and enables him to obtain more credit from NISO and the Bank of California. The Futures program proves to be successful, solidifying Blue Ribbon's position in the market. And on a more personal note and a highlight for Phil and his family, Penny gives birth to their second son, named Travis, in September of 1973. Here are the key lessons learned from chapters 10 through 12. So Phil faces uh, a challenge from Onitsuka, potentially finding a new distributor, which claims and threatens Blue Ribbon's existing contract. However, he aims to maintain this rocky relationship with Onitsuka for as long as possible due to financial considerations and hoping to find a new way to separate ties with Onitsuka. Phil and Kitame's tensions are really heightened during Kitame's visit to the United States as both sides really hide their intentions from one another. Phil steals files from Kitame's uh, suitcase, again, to gain insight into Onitsuka's plans. This kind of conflict with Onitsuka leads Phil and uh, Blue Ribbon at the time to make a strategic decision of producing their own shoes. And this is truly the result of the birth of Nike. He settles on the iconic Nike swoosh and establishes partnership with Japanese trading company Niso, providing an additional kind of line of credit. Chapter 13, 1974. Phil sits down in a courthouse in downtown Portland on April 14, 1974, flanked by cousin Hauser and Strasser. Across from them, lawyers representing Onitsuka await. Phil finds Onitsuka's head lawyer, Hilliard, to be an intimidating figure, his every word laced with a sense of foreboding. Blue Ribbon's head lawyer is none other than cousin Hauser himself. When Phil takes the stand, he really starts to feel the weight of the pressure bearing down on him. Unfortunately, he doesn't perform well as he had hoped. The day after, the judge orders the case to not be discussed outside of the court. But, unfortunately, Johnson talks about it with a local retailer breaching the judge's orders. And the judge, and knowing this, and the judge comes down hard on the Blue Ribbon team for this violation. Later, it's Bowerman's turn to take the stand, but he too struggles under the pressure. 
And so to set the picture, the blue ribbon team isn't looking great. Phil didn't do well when he was questioned. Bowerman didn't do well. And they had also breached the court's rule to talk about the case outside of the court. So on paper, things are looking very bad for them. And despite all of their less than ideal performances, the judge ultimately rules in favor of Blue Ribbon. And Onitsuka makes a settlement offer of $400,000, which Cousin Hauser and Phil accept. Phil and the rest of the Blue Ribbon team believe that they had won the trial because they were more open and bluntfully honest about the entire situation. They didn't hide anything from the judge and the court. On the other hand, Onitsuka, mainly Kitame and his stakeholders and team, they seem to be a little bit more dishonest during the entire proceedings. So for example, Kitame, who could speak pretty well English, had a translator go up there while he was on stand to translate everything that he would say, even though he would sometimes correct the translator using you know, perfect English. So from the perspective of the judge and maybe the courtroom itself, they sided with the team and the, the company that overall during this entire court or this entire case was just more honest and open. Following the case, Phil extends a full-time job offer to Strasser, inviting him to join Blue Ribbon. And after consulting with his father, Strasser becomes the company's first ever in-house counsel. His legal expertise will prove invaluable during future Blue Ribbon uh, endeavors. Due to changing circumstances in Japan, Phil decides to seek out a new factory locations. He devises a plan to transport materials from Puerto Rico to factories in New England. Accompanied by Johnson, he visits a rundown factory in New Hampshire. There they meet Bill, a local man who agrees to assist them in cleaning and staffing the factory. Bill reveals his intention to use funding from the NISO to establish the factory and asks Johnson to oversee its operations. Although initially hesitant, Johnson eventually accepts the challenge and relocates once again this time to New Hampshire on the East Coast. Chapter 14, 1975. Bill remains determined to maintain the satisfaction of his creditors, particularly to Ito, the financial manager at NISO's Portland office. Despite facing cash flow challenges, Bill refuses to slow down the growth of Blue Ribbon, even if it means stretching the company's reserves and occasionally overdrawing their accounts. In the spring of 1975, Blue Ribbon finds itself owing NISO $1 million, with a shortfall of around $75,000. To make the payment, Phil is forced to drain the accounts of their retail stores across the country. Unfortunately, this leads to several employees' paychecks bouncing at the East Coast factory. Hay steps in and contacts the company's banker, Holland, to smooth things over, while Gian Pietro borrows $5,000 from a friend to ensure that all workers are paid for. Hayes and Phil meet with Holland at the Bank of California, only to receive disheartening news. Holland informs them that the bank no longer wants to continue doing business with Blue Ribbon. Determined to find a solution, they waste no time and immediately share the news with Ito and Sumeragi, representatives from NISO. Phil openly admits that Blue Ribbon has been surviving by floating funds and that in addition to being unable to pay the $1 million owed, they required an additional $1 million to stay afloat. Ito insists on reviewing Blue Ribbon's financial records before considering another loan. Later that same evening, Phil receives a call from Holland, revealing that the FBI has been alerted due to the bank's suspicion of fraud involving with Blue Ribbon. Phil realizes that everything now hinges on NISO's assessment and approval. As the company's checks and creditors start bouncing, two creditors threaten to come to Portland to collect their payments. On a crucial Monday morning at 9 a.m., Ito and Sumeragi arrive to examine Blue Ribbon's financial records. While they discover that Phil has utilized Niso's funding to establish a factory, they ultimately chose to forgive him. This leaves the FBI investigation as the last kind of final hurdle. Phil, Hayes, and Ito meet with Holland at the Bank of California, where Ito informs Holland that Niso intends to fully pay off Blue Ribbon's debt. As Phil leaves the office, he realizes with relief that the FBI investigation has been averted. Chapter 15, 1975. Phil and Hayes find themselves in a desperate search for a new bank to provide the necessary coverage. Luckily, the First State Bank of Oregon comes to the rescue, offering them a credit line of $1 million. During a meet hosted by Pre in Eugene, Oregon, 
The legendary runner showcases his exceptional talent by defeating Olympic gold medalist Frank Shorter in a thrilling 5,000 meter race. The victory is celebrated with a lively party at Hollister's house where the energy is high and the atmosphere is filled with joy. After the festivities, Pre offers to drive Shorter home. Tragically, he loses control of his vehicle, resulting in a devastating accident. In the early hours of the morning, Bill receives a heart-wrenching call from Ed Campbell at the Bank of California. Campbell delivers the devastating news that Pre has passed away. The loss of the 24-year-old runner hits Bill really hard as he begins to reflect on his own journey and the similarities in age and those between him and Pre. I'm going to quote the last paragraph from this chapter discussing Pre's death. And I quote, Later Phil heard that something was happening at the spot where Pre died. It was becoming a shrine. People were visiting every day, leaving flowers, letters, notes, and gifts. Nikes. Someone should collect it all, I thought. Keep it in a safe place. I recalled the many holy sites I'd visited in 1962. Someone needed to curate Pre's rock and I decided that someone needed to be us. We didn't have the money for anything like that, but I talked it over with Johnson and Waddell, and we agreed that, as long as we were in business, we'd find money for things like that. Here are the lessons learned and key takeaways from chapters 13 through 15. So during these chapters, Nike faces significant changes, both on the business front and the emotional perspective. In Chapter 13, Nike engages in a trial against Onitsuka, where mistakes were made by Phil, Bowerman, and Johnson and Waddell. However, they ultimately emerge victorious, and the trial brings them an important addition to the team. Strasser, the talented lawyer who shares Nike's vision and becomes a trusted member of the company. Meanwhile, the Bank of California withdraws their support from the company, causing a huge financial turmoil for Nike. But with the help of their creditors at NISO, who showed unexpected forgiveness, they managed to overcome the crisis. And then, on an emotional level, the tragic death of the legendary runner Pre shakes Nike and Phil. His loss is deeply felt throughout the company, especially Bowerman, who mourns not only the loss of a great athlete, but also the potential he saw in Pre. Phil makes a note and highlights that he believes Pre's spirit lives on within Nike. Chapter 16 1976. After the devastating loss of Pre, Bowerman approaches Phil with an offer to sell two-thirds of his stake at Blue Ribbon. Though hesitant, Phil realizes the importance of keeping Bowerman's expertise and persuades him to remain as vice president and board member. Phil witnesses remarkable success in 1976 with Bowerman's waffle trainer shoes. The shoes provide Nike with a distinct identity and propels the brand into households across the nation. Inspired by his achievement, Phil sets ambitious new sales goals to match the growing demand. To meet the increased production needs, Phil sets his sights on Taiwan. Accompanied by his entrusted employee, Jim Gorman, they explore factories in Taiwan and meet Jerry Hisai in Tepai, who offers assistance in connecting them with suitable manufacturing facilities. At the start of the 1976 Olympic trials in Eugene, the top finishers in the 10,000 meter race proudly wore Nikes. Shorter emerges victorious in the marathon, and Craig Virgin claims a 5,000 meter title, both supporting Nikes. However, Phil is disappointed when he discovers that Shorter opts for Tigers at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. During the biannual meeting where all the executives of Blue Ribbon or Nike get together, Phil gathers Waddell, Strasser, Hayes, and Johnson. The topic of going public arises. After a careful deliberation and discussion, they all agree that taking Nike public could be the best path to sustain their growth and finally secure the company's future. Chapter 17, 1977. In March of 1977, Phil has a meeting with a man named M. Frank Rudy, who presents an intriguing idea of injecting air into running shoes for enhanced cushioning. Initially skeptical, Phil rejects the concept. However, after fitting a pair of air soles into his running shoes and going for a jog, he has a change of heart. Phil and Strasser strike a deal with Rudy and begin experimenting with air soles at their factory. Phil initiates a campaign to send college basketball teams and individual players to Nike. 
while also securing product placements in popular films and TV shows like Charlie's Angels. A new advertising campaign with the slogan, There is no finish line, it's the airwaves, capturing the essence of Nike's philosophy. Dealing with debenture holders were eager to cash in. Phil seeks guidance from a shrewd businessman named Chuck Robinson, a former World War II commander. Robinson emphasizes that going public is essential. Phil presents the decision to Hayes, Waddell, Johnson, and Strasser, but the vote is evenly split, making the choice more challenging. During the Christmas season of 1977, Phil receives a staggering $25 million bill from the U.S. Customs due to an exploitive maneuver by competitors Converse and Keds. They took advantage of an outdated law, resulting in a 40% increase in Nike's import duties. Determined to fight back, Phil rallies his team to give it their all. Despite concerns about the impeding battle with U.S. Customs, 1977 concludes with Nike achieving sales of nearly $70 million. Encouraged by the company's growth, Phil decides to purchase a larger house to accommodate his expanding family, and he also makes an effort to spend more quality time with his two sons, Matthew and Travis, even though their interest in sports is not as predominant as he had hoped for. Chapter 18 1978. In this chapter, Phil hires a lawyer named Richard Ruskell to assist with Nike in the upcoming legal battle with U.S. Customs. Described as dark, sarcastic, and bespectacle with a kind of eccentric streak, Richard was sent to Washington, D.C. to handle the case on behalf of Nike. Meanwhile, Nike is poised to achieve sales of $140 million with some industry insiders now recognizing the superior quality of Nike products compared to Adidas. To accommodate its growth, Nike relocates its headquarters to a spacious facility in Beaverton, Oregon. During an executive meeting in 1978, Phil announces that Nike will be expanding into the clothing line, initially hiring an inexperienced accountant named Ron Nelson to head the apparel division. Phil then realizes that Nelson actually lacks the necessary expertise in his own style to run the department. As a result, he appoints Waddell to take charge of the apparel line. At the end of 1978, Nike launches the Tailwind Shoe, incorporating Rudy's Air Sole technology. Although the shoe enjoys a successful debut, customers soon report issues with its durability, leading Nike to issue a recall. Strasser, who had overseen the shoe's development, takes the failure very personally and feels very disheartened by it. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., Richard diligently prepares a comprehensive document for Nike's case and seeks support from politicians. However, it becomes evident that his mental state is deteriorating. In an effort to restore his composure, Bill sends Strasser to the East Coast to provide reassurance. Upon Strasser's return, it appears that his intervention that helped alleviate Richard's depression. Nonetheless, it becomes very clear to Phil that he himself must personally travel to Washington, D.C. to manage the situation with Richard and resolve the ongoing U.S. Customs predicament. Here are the key lessons learned and key points from chapters 16 through 18. The question of whether to go public is kind of this reoccurring dilemma for Nike and the rest of the team. While going public could generate a significant amount of money quickly, it also poses the risk of losing control over the company's culture. Phil consistently prioritizes maintaining control over seeking kind of quick financial gains. The second kind of key takeaway is Bowerman's role in the company changes during this period. He decides to sell most of his shares and takes more passive role following the tragedies of the 1972 Olympics and the death of Bree. Despite his retirement, Bowerman remains involved in Nike through his shoe experiments and displays frustrations when he kind of feels excluded from decisions highlighting his continued embodiment of the Nike spirit. Third, Phil's dedication to growing Nike comes at the expense of spending time with his sons, Matthew and Travis. He experiences guilt and struggles to find a balance between his profession and his family responsibilities. While one of his sons, Travis, shows an understanding and forgiveness, Matthew appears to hold some sort of resentment towards Phil. Phil acknowledges the importance of time in his relationship with his sons. He vows to change and spend more time with them, but often falls back into his established routine. This highlights the challenge of finding a balance between work and family, 
and raises the question of how much a difference between a few words or hours would make in a son's lives. Phil faces these challenges alone and reflects on the need for personal growth in his parenting role. Chapter 19, 1979. Phil meets with a man at the Treasury Department in Washington, D.C. in an attempt to convince him that the bill Nike had received for $25 million was just a gigantic misunderstanding. Phil presents the man with a memo that claims the American selling price does not have anything to do with Nike, but the man continues to demand the $25 million payment. Phil begins traveling frequently to Washington, D.C. to seek help from politicians and consultants. In the summer of 1979, Burskull and Phil meet with an Oregon senator named Marco Hatfield, who agrees to help Nike's cause. Both Hatfield and another Oregon senator, Bob Packwood, call the man and his boss at the Treasury Department to get this $25 million bill resolved. In parallel to this customs bill getting resolved, Phil seeks the help of a man named David Chang into breaking into the Chinese market. Chang is said to be an expert in trade in China, although when meeting with the rest of the team, his first few meetings with Waddell, Strasser were very awkward as he made kind of blank comments on their weight and appearance. Nonetheless, he was brought on to get and understand the trade relations with China and to make it possible for Nike to break into the Chinese market. Chapter 20, 1980. Phil deploys a number of moves in his fight against the U.S. Customs. First, he creates a new shoe and prices it very low so that officials would have to use this competitor shoe as a new reference point in deciding their import duty. Then Nike started to air a commercial that portrays its fight against the U.S. government. And finally, Nike files a $25 million antitrust suit that claims its competitors had conspired to undermine Nike through underhanded business practices. The man at the Treasury Department and his superiors begin settlement talks, although Phil doesn't want anything to do with settlement and to pay a single dollar. Ultimately, after talking to his lawyers and the rest of his team, he ends up settling on a deal to pay $9 million. During this whole ordeal, Phil revisits the possibility of going public. He learns of a way to go public without losing control of the company, in which he issues two different types of classes of stock. He puts the decision to a vote with his inner circle, and they unanimously vote in favor of going public. Again, in parallel, Phil receives a letter from the Chinese government welcoming him for a formal visit. In July of 1980, Phil boards a plane with Chang, Strasser, and Hayes. For two weeks, they travel throughout China with government aides. Many of the factories they visit in remote towns outside of Beijing are run down and subpar. Then, they take a 19-hour train ride to Shanghai, where they make a deal with the government's Ministry of Sports. At the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, Chinese athletes would enter the stadium wearing Nike shoes and apparel. They then meet with the Ministry of Foreign Trade and secure deals with two Chinese factories to become the first American shoemaker in 25 years to be allowed business in China. Upon returning to Oregon, Phil makes a number of important decisions related to the process of going public. He chooses a firm to oversee the process, handle the paperwork, and then hands the paperwork to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and in September of that year, releases a formal announcement. Phil and others travel to promote the offering, and at a formal dinner in New York City, Hayes makes an awkward joke, and Phil decides that only he and Johnson will be able to then present to potential investors moving forward. During their kind of roadshow to publicize and meet with investors for their IPO, they travel to Chicago, Dallas, Houston, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Seattle. They choose December 2nd of 1980 as the date of their offering. Though the hired firm advises a price of $20 per share, Phil insists on a price of $22 per share, equaling the same price per share as another tech company getting ready to go public that year called Apple. Phil drives home after finalizing the deal. He puts his son to bed and calculates how much his partners will soon be worth. Bowerman would be worth $9 million, while Waddell, Johnson, Hayes, and Strasser would all be worth around $6 million. And at the end, Phil would be worth around $178 million. Epilogue, ninth. Phil and Penny run to Bill Gates and Warren Buffett at a screening of a film called The Bucket List in 2007. One of the men asks Phil what's on his bucket list. 
which prompts him to reflect on whether he has done everything in his life he's wanted to. Phil reflects on the state of his company after stepping down as CEO. In the year of 2006, Nike did $16 billion in sales, while Adidas did $10 billion. He thinks back on the celebrity athletes around whom Nike developed a brand and identity with, such as Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and Tiger Woods. Phil also discusses the tragic death of his son Matthew in a scuba diving accident in 2000. Many athletes, including Tiger Woods, called Phil personally to express their condolences. Phil remembers others who passed away, including Bowerman and Strasser. Phil also talks about what his former executive team are doing now. Waddell lives in Central Oregon, while Johnson lives alone in New Hampshire, where he's converted a barn into a large mansion to uh, house thousands of his books. Returning to the reflections about his bucket list, Phil thinks, and I quote, it might be nice one day to tell the story of Nike. He then grabs the legal pad, sits in his recliner, and begins to write. Lessons learned from chapters 19 through the epilogue. So in Shoe Dog, the, the memoir that Phil writes that shares kind of his motivation in building Nike went beyond simply about just making money. That's not what he cared about. He sought higher ideals such as seeking victory and turning his work into kind of perpetual play. Business, again, was not solely about profits for him, but about something greater and more meaningful. He faces two major challenges in the final chapters. One, breaking into the Chinese market, and the second, taking Nike public. To enter the Chinese market, he enlists the help of an awkward fit, Chang, who has an expertise in China trade, and this partnership proves crucial for Nike's global success. And also, of that year, going public while maintaining major control in the company, and they were able to find a solution by understanding the two tiers of stock for the company. The epilogue reflects on the years of 1980 to 2006 as Phil stepped down as CEO, and it highlights and covers the highs and lows, including personal losses, controversies, and relationships with iconic athletes and his executive team. And we have finally reached the end of this book. I'd have to say this is one of the one of my favorite books I've ever read, and I actually wish I would have sat down and read this one much sooner in life. It's uh, really fantastic. I learned a lot, and I thought it was an absolutely fantastic story of one of the most renowned and respected companies that's been a part of my life since I was an early kid, of course, as well. So with that, I really highly recommend anyone fully read this, as I obviously had to skip around some details and other things. But with that, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next week. See you soon.